From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Healthcare workers are exhausted by the continued spread of COVID-19. That says the CDC reups masking recommendations, how some employers are leading the charge. Then actor Reed Miller was bullied so badly his parents homeschooled him. Growing up in a small town in Texas, where it's literally Friday Night Lights. I was not a football guy. I'm very small for my age, and I was even smaller. As an artist, it was really hard finding my place. But he's found it, next to Mark Wahlberg in the film Joe Bell. It's about bullying and ends, sadly, in Colorado. And later in the show, Colorado Springs marks 150 years with roots not in manufacturing, but in R&R. Lots of stuff is already produced, and lots of people might want to spend their money enjoying life instead. CPR's financial backbone is built with support from the community. There are many different kinds of gifts that make an impact, including gifts of real estate. You can donate real estate that is owned outright or real estate with an existing mortgage. And the property can be located anywhere in the U.S. Your generosity will support the news and music you value. Explore the benefits of donating a gift of real estate on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The spread of COVID-19 and its Delta variant are now being called a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Most people currently in the hospital are there because they are unimmunized. There's growing discussion of vaccine mandates, as we'll hear from CPR health reporter John Daly. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Despite all the demonstrable benefits and safety, uh, reasons for not getting the shot vary. Uh, Distrust of the vaccine, its side effects, the fact that it has not gotten FDA approval beyond emergency use. There's misinformation, of course, as well, and it's become political. Against that backdrop, what possible mandates are coming down? Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. But so far, the state's been hesitant to make vaccinations mandatory. A spokesman for Governor Jared Polis told me they're hoping ongoing incentives like the $100 Walmart gift cards will convince people to get a shot. The state also thinks once the FDA gives full authorization of the vaccines, many employers may consider a mandate. So coming from the private sector, not necessarily the public in that case. Yeah, exactly. And and we know that Colorado State, for instance, is waiting for FDA approval before making it mandatory for its students. Now, two of the state's largest medical providers are not waiting for that to happen. UC Health and Denver Health both announced Wednesday that they will require mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for employees or even uh, regular visitors to their buildings like volunteers. And here's Dr. Richard Zane, the head of the emergency department at UC Health. It's a matter of, you know, are we going to put this thing behind us because we have the tool to do it or are we not? Dr. Zane is one of many in Colorado, particularly in healthcare, who want to see COVID-19 vaccines made mandatory wherever possible. What about the federal government, John? We're hearing more on the federal front, too. On Thursday, President Biden announced that federal workers will be required to sign forms attesting that they've been vaccinated. Otherwise, they have to comply with new rules on mandatory masking, weekly testing, distancing, and more. So they're trying to make it hard if you haven't been vaccinated and easy if you have. And doing sort of a vaccine oath 
to some extent. As for Colorado, where does the vaccination rate stand right now? You know, still kind of a work in progress. About half, 54% of people are now fully vaccinated. Uh, That number is growing about 50,000 a week, so kind of sluggish there, though we're seeing uh, what looks to be a a drop-off this week. You know, the data can lag, so it's hard to know. We'll have to keep watching that. Roughly 2.6 million Coloradans, including children under 12 who aren't yet eligible, remain unvaccinated. Right. It's important when you look at the vaccination rate to consider the fact that that uh, does not include children. Exactly. Or is 54% of the eligible population? This is of the total population. Of the total the population. eligible is higher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. How does that compare to cases now of COVID-19, John? So, you know, we've got this Delta variant that's uh, roaming around and it's driving things up. The percentage of positive COVID-19 tests is growing each week. There were more than 4,000 reported last week. Now, keep in mind, there were more than 37,000 cases a week during the peak of the pandemic last winter. So we're not anywhere near that level. Mm -hmm. Uh, 42 of Colorado's 64 counties now meet the CDC's definition of having high or substantial community transmission of the virus. The CDC Tuesday recommended that even vaccinated residents in those counties wear masks in indoor public places to prevent further transmission. The CDC also now recommends Everyone in K through 12 schools wear masks when classes start, regardless of vaccination status. We'll see how that plays out. And a lot of districts are going to have to make those decisions shortly. John Daly, thank you so much for being with us. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly on the ongoing changes aimed at ending the pandemic. A grieving father set out on a cross-country hike in 2013. Joe Bell had lost his son, Jaden, to suicide. Jaden was gay and bullied for it at his high school in rural Oregon. After his son's death, Joe began a walk to New York City, where Jaden had hoped to live one day. His dad's mission was to tell anyone who'd listen about the effects of bullying. At the time, Joe Bell spoke with Oregon Public Broadcasting about the moment he decided to walk for Jaden. We spent 15 days with him in ICU, and uh, after watching him die... When we were home after the funeral, I was just lying in bed wanting to die myself. And I knew I couldn't do that. I had to uh, be there for my youngest son, Joseph, and Lola, my wife, and decided I had to do something different. So it just came to me to walk. Well, Joe Bell's trek came to an end in eastern Colorado along Highway 40 when a truck driver fell asleep at the wheel and struck and killed him. In the weeks leading up to Bell's death, He was in Metro Denver, where he spent time with suicide prevention advocate Richard Evely. In 2013, I asked Evely how the long walk had affected Bell physically. The effect I could see was that he was way fitter than I am. (laughs) You know, we set off and I was proud of myself getting toward the end of the five miles that I had accomplished it fairly well. But I realized Joe was just beginning to build momentum. His focus was absolute. He built up speed and he was a strong walker. I do know from other things that he's told me that he would often have to bandage his feet rotate his shoes and his knees. He had had a double knee replacement and and that sometimes gave him some difficulty. Now, eight years later, there's a Hollywood version of Joe Bell's story starring Mark Wahlberg as Joe and Reed Miller as his son, Jaden. Actor Reed Miller joined me from Los Angeles. Reed, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, of course. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
I think you were 13 in 2013. So I'm curious when you first heard about Joe Bell and his son, Jaden. Yeah, I was very young when all that happened. I had heard little things here and there on TV and like from people that I knew, but I was so young that I I didn't really think to do any real research until I got the role. And uh, when the script came my way, and I saw it was based on a true story. I was like, oh, I feel like I've heard of this, but I don't quite remember what happened. So then once I got the script and I started doing uh, a ton of research and I found out all the details about that story and I was just, I was really shocked because I knew about Jaden's passing, but I actually didn't know about what happened to Joe. Mm. And I didn't find that out until I had gotten the script and I had done the research and I was like, whoa. And it just like kind of hit me like a truck, like that realization of like, what a tragic story that not enough people, I think, know about. So that that's why I was so excited to be a part of this. That metaphor of being hit by a truck, of course, is uh, particularly relevant yeah. and, and haunting in this context. What was it about the script that spoke to you? I think it was Jaden in particular that really spoke to me, what he went through and that connection that I felt with him. Because as I was growing up, I dealt with a lot of bullying, a lot of misunderstandings as to who I am and who I wanted to be, because I also had a hard time figuring out who I wanted to be. Uh, And also growing up in a small town in Texas, where it's literally Friday Night Lights, it's like, you know, I was not a football guy. I never have been, never will be. And that's kind of predominantly what it was. You know, for me, as an artist, it was really hard finding my place. So when I read the script and I, I did more research, because because to be quite frank, you know, the script in the film is, is honestly such a tiny glimpse as to what really happened with Jaden. So for me, it was a combination of the material I was given as well as what I was hearing from his family, from what I knew about the story to really give myself the best understanding of what really happened and just knowing what he went through and like that connection that I felt with him and what it feels like to be alone I think that really touched me. I'll say that Jaden in real life was in rural Oregon at this high school where football was, you know, front and center. And he was a cheerleader. And I think the, the only male cheerleader, and this is depicted in the film where during a game, objects are being thrown at him from the crowd. Um, what were your own experiences, Reed Miller with bullying? You know, for me, I, uh, growing up in a town where football was a huge thing, I'm a, I'm a very small person. I'm very small for my age. And I was even smaller at the time. I was very, very short, very skinny. So I, I was definitely the, the butt of the joke all the time. You know, people thought they could push me around because I was so small and it was just people making assumptions about me that weren't true. And, you know, saying things that weren't true, calling me, I mean, it was, it, it got bad, which is why I actually started homeschooling oh, wow. uh, in the fifth grade, just because I couldn't do it. And I have a better grasp and handle on how I react to those situations. But at the time I was very young, I didn't really know what to do. And I'm very lucky that, you know, my parents honestly pulled me out of school when they did. And I was able to continue learning at home which helped my transition to LA for acting. So it all happened for Mm. a reason, but my experiences with bullying are obviously very different than Jaden's, but I do have that commonality of, of, of being misunderstood. 
In the movie, you play two versions of Jaden. Jaden, when he was alive and being bullied mercilessly, and Jaden in his father's imagination, kind of the almost the ghost of Jaden. Did you yeah. approach those scenes differently as an actor? Absolutely. There, there was definitely a difference between the two of them because there was Jaden in the past, you know, when he was alive. That was really the true Jaden. And then there was the Jaden that was also somewhat, it was 50%, uh, I would even say less, I would say 20% Jaden and the other percent Joe. Because it was Joe through Jaden's memory, mm. essentially trying to not punish himself, but teach him a lesson. And so that would come through Jaden's memory of like, dude, like, you've got to get it together. Like in the scene outside of the restaurant, uh, when we're talking about giving them a card and saying bye is not going to change anything. Right. So Joe, let, uh, let me just unpack this for folks who haven't yeah. seen the film. One, I am fascinated by your insight there, Reed, that to a certain extent, as you play young Jaden as a ghost or as a figment of the father's imagination, you're actually playing an extension of Joe, his father. That's fascinating. And then yeah. two, you're talking about this scene at the restaurant. So as Joe Bell in real life crosses the country, he's got these little cards he hands out to kind of point people to more information. And his son, Jaden, again, in Joe's imagination says, that's a cop out just to hand out a card. You need to be confronting people in the way that you told me to confront my bullies. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add now that I've provided that context? No, well, no, it's just so interesting that you said that because it's, it, it really is like, like through Jaden, it's essentially Joe telling himself, like, you're being a hypocrite. You're literally doing the exact opposite of what you told Jaden. Hmm. So there was definitely that super interesting balance there of Jaden and Joe because, you know, he's walking alongside Jade's memory and there is going to be flex and, and moments where Joe is coming out through that. And I thought that was really interesting as an actor and as a performer to be able to portray. Uh, it's like three different characters. Yeah, there was Jaden, yeah. the true Jaden. And then there was the memory of Jaden. And then there was Joe coming through the memory of Jaden. So that was definitely something to balance internally and really understanding in those scenes where we're walking together, you know, who's really speaking there? Is it Jaden speaking or is it Joe kind of ripping himself a new one? So that was very, very interesting to play. This meant, of course, that you and Mark Wahlberg share a lot of close father and son scenes. While he, as Joe Bell, is on his walk to New York, he imagines a conversation with you, Jaden, about the Big Apple and the possibility of meeting Lady Gaga. If you were me, would you rather live in La Grande or New York City? I happen to love La Grande, so... Uh-uh. What does La Grande have? Exactly. Nothing. What does New York City have? It has Broadway and Gaga, Dad. Oh. Lady Gaga. Don't do it. Don't do what? Listen to me when I say you're beautiful in your way because God makes no mistakes. You're I'm on, on the right track, track, baby. I was born this way. Excuse me, I didn't know you knew the words. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just, Just love yourself in your set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. All right. We're not doing that again. How was it to work with Mark Wahlberg in these rather intimate scenes? It was great. Mark is very good at making you feel like an equal. And he very much made me feel like an equal which allowed me to not only meet him at his level, but to try and go further. 
because he was right there with me, helping me every step of the way. And we very much have a father-son relationship. Uh, and he said that himself to me. He said that in it. I mean, we very much have had those conversations. So the fact that we already did have that sort of connection pretty instantly, that chemistry was so natural. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we got to get together and we got to build this thing up. It was mm. like, no, it was just more on set. We're doing it. We're being with each other. There wasn't any crazy rehearsals or anything that had to happen. It was just me and him doing our thing. And of course, we would get together and, and run lines, but there was never any time that we needed to build anything because it was already there. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We are speaking with the actor Reed Miller, who plays Jaden Bell in the new film Joe Bell, whose untimely end, Joe Bell's, took place in Colorado as he walked to remember his late son, Jaden, who completed suicide after being bullied pretty mercilessly in high school for being gay. Uh, again, Reed plays Jaden. Things seemed a lot different for the LGBTQ community back when Joe Bell first started his walk in 2013. And yet, you know, I think we're still dealing with many of the same problems. Bullying certainly hasn't gone away. I also think about the fact that in older Hollywood, there was a lot of stigma if you played someone who was gay and a lot mm -hmm. of typecasting. Does that exist anymore, Reed Miller? Or is that just like bygone Hollywood? You know, I think it depends, honestly. I do think typecasting is still a thing. I, and, and, I, and I think that, that this goes for really any type of character. I think when your first role your first big role breakout in something role. that everyone is going to see. Yeah. And your first, let's say breakout role. Thank you. Depending on whatever character you're portraying, I feel like a lot of people's initial instinct is to put you in that same role. Cause that's the only thing they see you as, but I feel like it's really situational and very dependent on where you are in your career. Like if I had already had multiple films under my belt and people already knew who I was, would I be, typecasted in that type of role? No, I don't believe so. But because it is my breakout and it's the only thing that they've seen me in, there have been more roles in that category that have come my way. Huh. Uh, which, which you know, totally isn't a problem or something that I frown upon or anything. It's For me, as an actor, I'm just always looking for new things to do and for roles that are going to expand my repertoire and show people my range. You know, I would totally love to play a character like this again, further down the line. Absolutely. And I would totally love to do films that, you know, are honoring and, you know, helping the LGBTQ plus community. Because uh, we need more stories, we need more films like that. So I think to answer, you know, your question about typecasting, I think it's very situational. I think I, I'm excited, like, about some of the stuff that I have coming up that is really going to show people different sides and very yeah, different characters. Name something, Reed. No, I can't. You can't. Okay. I can't. You know, I totally, you know, I totally would. I would totally do it right now, but uh -huh. I would be in so much trouble. Okay. No so right. I can't, but I totally would. But I promise there's a lot of really cool stuff coming that I'm really excited about that's very different. And that's what I love about acting is being able to just become different people. And, you know, that's why I was so honored to play Jaden was I got to tell someone's story who lived and breathed. Before I let you go, I wonder if I could just share an observation I had as a mm -hmm. viewer of the movie. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, as, and as somebody, myself, who experienced bullying, in my case, because I uh, am gay, uh, mm -hmm. the most painful scenes for me were, I guess, in addition to the physical violence that Jaden faced, 
Um, the most difficult scenes for me were how the school didn't step in. Yeah. And how the school seemed to blame Jaden. <laughs> that really resonated because my high school was um, pretty uninvolved when they knew that there was really serious bullying going on. Did, did that happen for you? I mean, it sounds to me that if your parents took you out of school, that you, it just was not a supportive environment. Yeah, I, it's really funny that you bring this up because I actually, I, I have had those experiences in school and I've actually had those experiences in other like um, facilities that I'm, I'm not going to like name drop anything, but oh. I've definitely had situations and issues where it just wasn't taken seriously or the victim was blamed. And I think that is a huge issue. Or boys will be boys kind of thing. Yeah. And that is, that is one of the, that is probably the most dangerously arrogant thing I've ever heard is for someone to say boys will be boys. It's that's not how that works. We need to be setting a precedent of respect. And when you say boys will be boys, that is doing the opposite of setting a precedent of respect. That is giving an excuse for that behavior. And that is something that I really, really, really hope this movie touches people upon. Like, I hope that it that it shows people like this is a problem then and is absolutely still a problem now. And I think it's still, a, if anything, more prominent because a lot of schooling is now online and all online bullying has already been such an issue. Now, you know, some people are like, oh, I feel safer now that I'm, you know, at home. I don't have to deal with it in person. It's almost worse now. Because people can bully you online with complete anonymity and get away with it in an environment where there won't be any repercussions because it's online. You, What are you going to do about wow. it? So it's, it's really like in the film, it starts at home. And it's about how you raise your kids and how you, you have got to teach your kids like words have so much weight. And even if it's you don't understand someone or understand their views, that is not an excuse to torment them there's so much work that has to be done in terms of acceptance it's we have come a long way but there's still so much that has to be done and i feel like there is the excuse i hear a lot of people go well we've done a lot okay your point so we stop now like that defeats the whole purpose so i i really hope that this film shows people that boys will be boys is not an excuse it shouldn't be and that that goes for everyone Reed, thank you so much for your time. Good luck in, in the future projects. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. My mama told me when I was young We are all born superstars She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir 21-year-old actor Reed Miller co-stars in the new movie Joe Bell. He plays Joe's late son, Jaden. Mark Wahlberg portrays Joe, whose cross-country trek to fight bullying ended in eastern Colorado in 2013. The father was killed when a trucker fell asleep at the wheel. Joe Bell is in theaters now. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a milestone for a Colorado city with unconventional roots. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Ooh, 
In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's second largest city, Colorado Springs, celebrates its sesquicentennial tomorrow, meaning it was founded 150 years ago. Founded, but of course there were people long before. Garden of the Gods, for example, considered a sacred space for indigenous people for a long time. But in 1871, Colorado Springs was officially born. From our station there, KRCC, managing editor Andrea Chalfin joins us. Andrea, hi. Hello. Nice to see you. The pandemic has kept us at such a distance. It is good to see you too, Ryan. All this week, Andrea, you've shared stories and conversations about the city's history. So tell me how you boiled down 150 years of Colorado Springs into like five reports. All right. Well, you know, it wasn't easy, but, um, you know, we we just kind of dug into some stories that seem to highlight what shapes the city. What shapes the city, including the Colorado Springs flag, which I'll admit I had not seen until today. Well, yeah, the flag, it's, uh, you you have that picture in front of you? I do. You know, there's a a kind of rainbow Darth Vader quality to it. What, <laughs> what, what is it? What does it tell us about Colorado Springs? Well, what it tells us about Colorado Springs is, you know, every single piece of that, including the white space, represents something. The white space stands for um, health and cleanliness of the city. The blue border stands for the blue skies and... Uh, there's a mountain in there that uh, has the sun behind it. Of course, that's Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak. It's Pikes Peak. And, uh, you know, so so everything on the flag actually represents something. And um, it came about in 1912, a product of the Civic League in Colorado Springs. Now, the Civic League was a women's group that was focused on getting citizens involved in government. And it's, you know, the flag, the flag has been pretty hit and miss throughout the years since its creation, but uh, it flies really tall at city buildings now. You know, you talked about the negative space, the importance of the white and the, the cleanliness, because so many people flocked to Colorado Springs for its good air. That included, of course, tuberculosis patients. Mm-hmm. But before all that, let's talk about General William Jackson Palmer, founder of Colorado Springs in 1871, a Civil War veteran a railroad guy who came west, founded the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, and a number of other things. How did he happen on what would become Colorado Springs? Well, there's a couple of things here. You know, John Harner, I interviewed him. He's a professor and geographer at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and wrote a book recently called Profiting from the Peak. Okay. He says Palmer needed a place to run his business from that wasn't settled yet. He wanted to establish his own town, uh, and saw opportunity with Pikes Peak. He wanted to create a resort-style town in the image of the East for the express purpose of relaxation. Here's Harner. I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember the exact language, but, you know, a genteel place for people of refined society where they could come and enjoy life and relax amongst the Rocky Mountain splendor. 
And he, he goes on to say that Palmer also recognized there was money to be made in the spa industry. So making money off of health and recreation was at the forefront of his mind. And he says that was truly visionary at the time when towns were typically founded for industry or otherwise, you know, as travel stops. Not spas. Others were saying, look, you're never going to succeed. You know, the, the basis of a society and a civilization has to be either you have to be producing things. And Palmer said, no, lots of stuff is already produced and lots of people might want to spend their money enjoying life instead. But this is the arid West, Andrea. Right. Yeah. And yet, as you say, he wanted to draw people from the East. Spa makes me think of water, by the way. Um, and the East is a place with a lot of water and with a lot of green. And I imagine folks brought that expectation with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Palmer understood right from the start that he needed to move water around. And within the year of the city's founding, investors financed a canal that drew water from Fountain Creek and irrigated lots. And as as John Harner said, they planted a whole bunch of trees and gardens that added value to the land. And by 1890, they created a reservoir. It was known as Prospect Lake. It is there now and it is in what is now Memorial Park. It's a great park and I go there all the time. And a sense of the history. Now that canal does not exist anymore, right? No, no, it doesn't. But they did keep moving water around. They did. And and it got them into trouble, too, when the city was sued for taking water and it affected users downstream. Downstream, which makes me think of the law of prior appropriation, that every drop of water in the West is essentially <laughs> spoken for. And, and that was a test of new water laws the state had created in the late 1800s. It was. And, and so even from its earliest days, the city was a player in the, in the movement of water, even across basins. Water as history. You asked people to call in and share their memories of Colorado Springs. We did. Here's here's one of them. Hi, it's Tom Ross. I'm a Colorado Springs native, and my father also was born here. And his dad, uh, who worked for the Gazette Telegraph, uh, my father was a professional jazz player as well as an English professor. And so my first jobs were with him playing music. I played guitar. But we had the luck to have the famous jazz guitarist Johnny Smith move to town. I think it was 1960. And I came under his wing at a tender age and learned lots. But my uh, one of my dearest memories of, of my apprenticeship in music and jazz uh, is uh, next to the Cotton Club with Fannie Mae Duncan, of course, presiding. And uh, two doors down, there was the community center where my father's uh, age musicians, John and Max McDonald, who played piano and bass, uh, had me on little jobs every Sunday uh, when I was growing up, and they would encourage me when I did something good. They'd say, there you go, Tommy, do that. That's it, baby, do it like that. <laughs> and uh, also at, at Fannie Mae's, I played in an organ trio a, a little bit, and that was a great thrill. She was a very generous uh, host uh, for for music. Oh, yes, Fannie Mae Duncan and her Cotton Club uh, an African-American female business owner. I'll say, Andrea, that my stepfather went to Colorado College and mm. some of his fondest memories are of Fannie Mae Duncan and her, and her club. Uh, you, you, have, you have other memories. Yeah, and here's, here's another one. Hi, my name is Gina Trovis Scharschmidt. My family has been in Colorado Springs since 1901. My mom was born here and I was born here. Here's my story. 
The year was 1971, and I was seven. My friend Marcy invited me and a handful of other girls to celebrate her birthday. It started out with a game of pin the tail on the donkey, a game of bingo, and the requisite cake and ice cream. After the games, Marcy's mom piled us into the family station wagon. We headed downtown to see the million-dollar duck at the Chief Theater. Walking in, I looked around and I felt like I was in a palace. We climbed a staircase that wrapped around an enormous marble pillar to the balcony, a seven-year-old's dream. Before the lights went off, I gaped at the detailed decorations everywhere. My chair had wrought iron curlicues under the armrests. There were decorations on the ceiling, on the walls, and in every nook and cranny. I can't remember anything about the movie, but that was secondary to the experience I had in that grandiose theater. It's a shame the building was torn down soon after, but my memory stays with me as the best birthday party ever. Oh, so it was a movie theater. The Million Dollar Duck, I, I confess I had to look this up, a 1971 American comedy in which a duck starts laying eggs with golden yolks. <laughs> okay. Some of the memories that you have shared with us through KRCC as Colorado Springs turns 150. So that theater was torn down. Yep, that theater was torn down. It's uh, it's not there anymore. Neither is the Cotton Club, which we heard uh, in the clip previously. Yep. But of course, uh, Fannie Mae Duncan, truly an important figure in the city's history. You know, but then I get to thinking about buildings that no longer exist. It happens everywhere. Colorado Springs is no stranger to that. Um, historical places come down. We think about long lost architecture. One of the places that really surprised me when I saw it was the Colorado Springs High School in the downtown area. No longer there anymore. No longer there. Des describe it for us. I mean, it's really beautiful. It's got this giant clock tower, this central location with with these rounded, I don't know what the proper architectural term is, but the the rounded corners of the building. Uh, it looks uh, brick, several stories high. Uh, it's just a really beautiful, beautiful building. Hmm. Uh, built in, I think, 1892 and, and torn down. Yeah, but Queen Palmer, General Palmer's wife, she basically started the education system in Colorado Springs in what is now School District 11. The Palmer is another example of their influence. Mm. Andrea Chalfin, you're doing these stories, hearing all these memories. How does then become now? I mean, like, how do you follow the threads from, from the town's founding to, to modern-day Colorado Springs? Well, you know, water has always been an issue back then, certainly still today. Right. Other things that we explored uh, were the economic and physical footprints of the city. Big footprints. And not just in how prominent the military is, for instance, or the evangelical community, but the actual physical size of the city. Uh, anything surprise you as you were exploring these topics? Yeah, actually, I mean, you know, we're in the Olympics right now happening in Tokyo, Colorado Springs is now known as Olympic City, USA. That's not a surprise. I've known that. Yeah, but the timing is quite right, I suppose. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so as Denver is the mile-high city, Colorado Springs, Olympic City, USA. 
Right. And, you know, depending on who you ask, you know, some might think it's a little strange for your identity uh, to be tied to an organization that has no allegiance to place. I mean, we have the Olympic Committee here. We have a training center and now certainly the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, but it's still this outside organization. Hmm. Um, But John Harner, who we heard from earlier, you know, he really ties that to the extension of this resort and spa vision that Palmer had right from the start. And even today, when you see the Olympics and the recreation economy, that's driven by this post-industrial economy we're in now, right? And it built upon this earlier resort image that we had in recreation and tourism. Interesting. The Olympics not manufacturing anything per se, but certainly a producer of physicality and dreams and uh, aspirations. Uh, As to the physical footprint of the city, which I mentioned briefly, it really is big. I mean, just looking at the city limits bigger than the geography of Denver, right? It is. You know, the city saw most of its rapid growth when development favored suburbanization and sprawl, which in which in many ways is is why Colorado Springs can feel like a town more than a city. But it's changing, not the landmass, but but there are infill projects and the city is growing up, literally and figuratively. Up, right, as opposed to out. That presents challenges too, I imagine. What does it mean for the identity of Colorado Springs, both that kind of growth and just how quickly it's happening? Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, what is the development that's coming in and how do we as a city decide what we want to be. You know, if you ask John Harner, he'll say there's some sense of homogenization to some of it. But if you ask Hannah Van Nimwegen, a senior city planner, she'll point out redevelopment of historic buildings into hip new centers, as well as, you know, lifestyle centers, you know, things like with your movie theaters and and whatnot. And she says maintaining a sense of place is really up to the neighborhoods. So, yeah, we have one unified identity of this amazing Olympic city, but there's also these smaller components that people identify with, which is their their street and their neighborhood and their schools. Meanwhile, Denver, no stranger to development. We see that happening really all along the front range, just exploding. I understand you ask that city planner a question that many have thought about, I think, uh, this idea that eventually everything from like Fort Collins to Pueblo, that whole I-25 corridor is just going to be one big megalopolis. <laughs> yeah, it you know, we, we certainly asked her, you know, it's not entirely possible. There is Greenland open space near I-25. But here's what Hannah Van Nimwegen had to say. I think that it's anecdotally possible. I don't think that it's going to be one solid city or one solid line of development all the way between here and there. But it may appear that way if you're driving on I-25. If I had to venture a guess, that's 50, 60, 70 years in the future, though. Hmm. Hmm. Feels like it's coming faster. I'm so glad you mentioned <laughs> Greenland because that corridor always reminds me there will always be a little breath of fresh air between mm. Denver and, and Colorado so, Springs. And so aptly named, right? <laughs> Greenland, exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Andrea Chalfin. This has been fun. Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate being here. KRCC Managing Editor Andrea Chalfin. And thanks to the reporting team there, which includes Mike Grissell and Abigail Beckman. The official celebration of Colorado Springs' sesquicentennial kicks off Saturday morning downtown with a parade through time, followed by a festival that also honors the Olympics. So we talked about the Springs flag. There's a great story as well behind the state flag. And we thought we'd reshare it because Sunday is Colorado Day. 
That's the day marking statehood, August 1st, 1876. Brian Trembath of the Denver Public Library told me the state flag is based on a mistake. Hi, Brian. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. So what is this mistake that the current flag is based on? Well, in 1910, some representatives of the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution were getting together, and they decided that it was a terrible thing that Colorado did not have a state flag. And they said state loyalty is too precious ever to be lost. So they uh, set about designing their own flag. But there was, in fact, already a flag um, (laughs) that had just a couple years before the state had commissioned a flag that was more like other states have, you know, the state seal just on blue not much to it, really. I I uh, guess unremarkable enough that people didn't know even of its existence. And that's partially because it was kept in a custodian's closet at the Capitol. And they hardly used it at all, if if at all. So they put out the call for a new flag. Do they realize at some point that there was a flag already? And then they just decided, you know what, let's come up with something better. Pretty much. Yeah, they just decided to go with this. I, I feel like from my research that the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, had a lot of pull um, with the state legislature, and they got what they wanted, and they got it very quickly. They put out the call, I suppose, for designs, and mm-hmm. a man named Andrew Carlisle Carson comes along. Tell us about him. You know, we don't know much about him, but he put together the flag that we know today with two horizontal stripes of Yale blue and one white stripe, all of equal width, and the large C uh, with gold center and a red in the middle. With, of course, each piece, you know, symbolizing some part of the state. Yeah, let's talk about what each of the colors represents. So uh, the Yale blue, uh, what does it represent? The blue is, and this is from the actual official designation, Senate Bill 118, that passed May 6, 1911. The Yale blue stripes stand for the ever-smiling skies of the Rocky Mountain region. I love uh, describing the sky as ever-smiling. Okay, run us through the other colors. The white stripe typifies the white metal silver in whose production Colorado also leads the entire galaxy of states. So silver production at that time was probably greatly reduced, but was still one of our main uh, things. And then blue and white together gives us the colors of the Columbine. Oh, and of course, the uh, gold center uh, is sunshine. Do you think that uh, among state flags, Colorado's is particularly successful or unusual? In comparison to most state flags, it's always had a very contemporary feel. In fact, I can kind of remember as a child thinking that it must have been something that was designed relatively recently because it always felt a little more modern, mainly because it didn't use the state seal at all and has no Latin words. Thank you so much for being with us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Brian Trembath, Special Collections Librarian at the Denver Public Library. We spoke in 2019. Colorado Day is Sunday, August 1st. That's the day Colorado became a state in 1876. Three-term Colorado Governor Dick Lamb has died. He was 85. Lamb, a Democrat who served from 1975 to 1987, died Thursday evening, complications from a pulmonary embolism he'd suffered earlier in the week. Lamb will be remembered for a number of things, leading the opposition to the 1976 Winter Olympics, which Colorado landed, then rejected. Lamb also spoke and wrote on the controversial subject of medical rationing, arguing that health care is a world of limited resources. And when he was a state lawmaker, 
Dick Lamb championed the first law in the country to liberalize abortion. That bill passed in Colorado six years before Roe v. Wade. In 1987, as Lamb prepared to leave the governor's office, he told CPR News he didn't have further political aspirations, but loved policy. You really do get uh, addicted to public policy and to the the roar of the crowd. But I've got to tell you right now, uh, while I just love running the state, I get up every morning and I'm very excited about going to work. Um, I'm really sick of politics. I'm sick of all the money that it takes to run for office and all of the time away from the family. Um, I don't want to live in Washington, D.C., and so my options are really very few. Um, I do want to, this is where my, my epicenter of my being is in Colorado. That's the best way I can put it. Dottie and I want to live here. And I do not see uh, right now another political race in me. I think that sort of when it's over, it's over, and it's time for me to go on to other things. The former and now late Colorado Governor Dick Lamb from 1987. Despite what he said there, Lamb did run to be a minor party candidate for president in 1996, but lost to Ross Perot. Our state's current governor, Jared Polis, shared his thoughts on Lamb's passing, quote, Governor Lamb took on tough issues, and he never shied away from civil political discourse and embraced collaboration. Polis ordered flags to fly at half-staff. A beloved summer staple has returned to grocery stores. Olathe sweet corn is famous for its sugary, fresh taste, and it's only grown in a small pocket of rural western Colorado. CPR's Tina Sieg woke up early for the first day of harvest. A delicious, delicate light is just starting to illuminate a cornfield. Vans pull up and dozens of seasonal workers get out in sun hats and baseball caps, cell phones and water bottles in their back pockets. It's still cool out, but in a few hours, it's going to be sweltering. Yeah, it's hot, says Samuel Leoncano, but you get climatized. Like many of the workers, he's traveled from Mexico to help with the sweet corn harvest, just like he's been doing for the last 21 years. Leon Cano says he likes the work and making U.S. dollars. Migrant workers are the reason why Olathe sweet corn season is able to happen at all. This corn is picked by hand pulled swiftly off their stalks by a line of guys marching into the muddy field. They toss the corn into a metal trough above them, troughs that jut out like wings from either side of a flatbed trailer. Above the troughs, other guys are sorting the corn into plastic baskets. They push the baskets down a conveyor belt, and more guys stack them. Pick, throw, sort, stack. Pick, throw, sort, stack. The process is mesmerizing and relentless, all while a truck backs the flatbed into the field. There are various sweet corn producers around here, but... We're the first, the original, the biggest, and I like to think the best. That's David Harold. His dad, John, started the Tuxedo Corn Company back in the 80s, and it sparked this whole Olathe sweet corn mystique. Their corn is even trademarked as Olathe sweet. We've got something special. It's not just 
sweet corn. Olathe sweet sweet corn comes from varieties chosen for their sweetness and tenderness. For hand picking. And it's grown in the area around the tiny town of Olathe, outside of Montrose, where the hot days and cool nights make for peak sweetness. David Harold says after the corn's picked, it's rushed out of the field and cooled. So the, the sugars are maintained. Then it's packed in ice and spirited off to stores. So that, you know, when it's consumed, it's as close to possible as if you were eating it raw in the field. Which is exactly how he likes it best. Some of this corn travels far, to dozens of other states, Canada even. And some of it goes just down the road. Jason Lawrence is picking corn bound for the small town of Eckert, less than half an hour away. This is my workout plan. Come out with Gary. Gary Espinoza, driving alongside, his truck bed full of corn. He owns the Big E Market, where customers have been asking about the corn for months already. They know that the summer is officially here when this sweet corn truck pulls into the Big E in Eckert, so... <laughs> Around here, this crop is not just a summer treat. It's a real point of pride. And it's put Olathe on the map. Oh, yeah. Kathy English says any local will tell you. We grow the best. That's what they always say. Today's harvest is actually at her and her husband Bill's farm, where they started producing Olathe sweet, sweet corn for the Harold family decades ago. She smiles at David Harold's two young sons playing on their dad's pickup. This is what this is all about right here, because there's your featured growers. But only if they want that, their dad tells me. I walk up to four-year-old Luca, who proudly starts to shuck me an ear. Will you help me pull this apart? I, I can't. We pry off the husk, revealing the pale yellow jewels of corn inside. Try it. Okay. Like this? Uh, like, bite it on that side. It's sweet and earthy and instantly addictive. My first taste ever of this famous corn. Shall we learn about more corn? Yes. All right. And we walk into the rows upon rows of Olathe sweet, sweet corn. Harvest typically lasts into September. In a field outside of Olathe, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters, with thanks to a team that's sweet and only sometimes corny. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.